0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode number fifty-six
1: of Task Force Seven Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Redis. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own and not of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or results of my current employment. I never never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So, again, to check out our recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, first off, the numbers came in for last month's listenership, and the situation is starting to get serious here, folks. The numbers were huge, and I'm also really starting to get a sense of what my listeners want to hear and what they want to listen to. You know, uh, compared to episode to episode and how many listeners for each episode and so on and so forth. We just had a fantastic month, clearly the, the best month ever on the show by far. Um, we pretty much doubled our listenership. It's, it's amazing. So the, the, the show is, is taking off, and I'm pretty ecstatic about it. Uh, the producers are very happy with the progress of this show. And so thanks so much to our executive producer, Randall Obero, and our production manager, Randy Jackman, and the whole Voice America team for all they do in helping making this show such a great success. I really appreciate you guys, thanks so much. So, folks, our global listenership is really expanding and that's part of the reason we're getting bigger. I mean, I especially want to give a shout out to our listeners in China and Germany, our friends down under in Australia, the UK and New Zealand. Our listenership in these countries is now pretty significant and we got listeners in about 40 countries around the world, so. That is very cool when you think about it, right? I don't, I don't, I don't really sit, sit down and really think about that too much, right? but I, I got to tell you, I, I reflected on it this week when I saw the numbers, and it's just exciting. So, you know, when I was listening to last week's show on playback, it hit me once again about the quality of the guests that we're able to get on the show. I mean, Ray Rothrock is a very senior guy. He's a senior dude. He's the CEO of a very successful company in Red Seal. He's on the board of Teammate. The superheroes of cybersecurity over there, and he's just a really, really wicked smart guy. He's got a master's degree in nuclear engineering from MIT. He's got an, an MBA with distinction from Harvard. I mean, he's got the best education someone could ask for. He's got a plethora of experience and in, in investing and working with companies in the cybersecurity space. And it just makes for a very interesting business conversation around cybersecurity. And that's what, we, that's what we had last week, a very interesting business conversation around digital resiliency and how resiliency can save your company from extinction when it's your turn to have a bad day. And because we all know it's inevitable, folks, at this point, the way the network was built, the way uh, the Internet was built, the way networks are built today, we're all going to have a bad day sooner or later. And it's going to be your response to the breach not your ability to prevent a breach, but your response to the breach that you're going to be judged on. And that's when we to start talking about the entire cybersecurity ecosystem here. And that means business continuity and disaster recovery and cybersecurity resiliency plans. They all have to be in place. They have to be tested and ready to be acted upon in a very expeditious manner. Because after all, if you don't start thinking about this stuff before the breach, it's too late. It's too late after that. If, you don't, if, if, if the breach happens and all of a sudden you start thinking about what you're going to do, well, you're just dead in the water after that or it's pretty much over. So what's unique and interesting about this show is that it is ultimately a business show. And it, it's a show where we have a bunch of people that come on that are tier one professionals with a ton of education and experience. And it's not a show where we have more, more technical conversations with engineers and sit around talking bits and bytes and getting down into the techno- technological weeds on topics that I think only a few people really understand relative to the, the marketplace and, and the, the potential listenership out there for those people who are really interested in how cybersecurity works. Because cybersecurity touches a whole, whole bunch of different people in business. There's a lot of different domains. There's, you know, risk, legal, compliance there's a whole bunch of people that want to know and have to know about uh, cybersecurity uh, acumen and models and ecosystems and how it all works together. So, I mean, if you want to tech tech talk, I mean, there's a few dozen shows out there. And if you're into that kind of thing, I mean, you can go geek out with some other podcasts, but, there's not another show in the market like TF7 Radio. There just isn't. I checked it out again the other day. I mean, a show that produces at least one hour of high-quality content with tier one guests that have such an influence week after week after week, and it's time to start thinking about what the real realm of the possible is with this show. I got a lot of ideas, and I've been thinking about it lately, and we're going to take it slow, but we have some really new and exciting thoughts about how we can continue to build this show into a platform that provides a tremendous amount of value to our listeners who actually take the time to listen to what we have to say. And it's very humbling. So if you want to hear about the importance of digital resiliency, go back and tune into last week's show with Ray Rothrock, the author of the new book, Digital Resiliency is Your Company Ready for the Next Cyber Threat. And hear what one of the most senior executives in the industry has to say about the survival of your company during a major cyber attack. That's Ray Rothrock, episode number 55 Task Force 7 Radio. So, if you're listening to us live on Voice of America right now, or maybe someone just sent you a link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Well, you can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world, and VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fixed. for everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out, TF7 Radio Playback, at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please don't forget to subscribe. So we have a great show planned for you tonight with another cybersecurity practitioner and huge influencer in the cybersecurity space. We're going to have none other than Darren Death on the show with us this evening. That's right. If you're a cybersecurity professional and you're active on social media, you know who Darren is, and you're going to be excited to get a full hour of his attention tonight on this show. Darren's the Vice President of Information Security and the Chief Information Security Officer at ASRC Federal. He's a proven technology leader and over 20 years' experience deploying enterprise systems for both large private and public organizations alike. And we kind of love that experience for this show. It provides a different perspective when someone has experience in both public and private life. So that's why we like having guests on to talk about this kind of stuff. So before ASRC Federal, Darren worked for the Department of Justice, where he was responsible for the creation of their much needed nationwide enterprise secret and top secret processing capability across the United States Attorney's Office, the U.S. Marshals Service, in the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Divisions. So at the Library of Congress, Darren was responsible for all emerging technologies as it related to information security. So currently he's the CISO of ASRC Federal. Darren was responsible for the enterprise-wide security program managing a $3 billion portfolio across numerous business verticals, including financial services, government contracting, and construction. So ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Darren Death. Darren, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, George. Thanks for having me.
1: So Darren, I'm really happy to have you here. Uh, I got a lot of questions for you today because I want to pick your brain on a variety of different things. So we're going to jump around a little bit, but I always like to ask my guests how they got started in the industry and how they rose to some of the highest levels of the profession because I'm finding out more and more, and not surprisingly, I might add, that our listeners appreciate the the career advice, the guidance, and some of the information that they get from top level professionals like yourself on how to manage their career. So tell us, how, how did you get started in the industry? And can you tell us a little bit about your rise to becoming the, the CISO of ASRC Federal and what your role looks like there today?
2: Okay, absolutely. So from the, uh, you know, because of my age and you know, the, the fact that you know, cyber programs are really starting now, um, you know, I started out as an aircraft mechanic. Um, so I did not start out thinking about IT and cyber. Um, I really started out my, uh, my, my direction going in, in information technology when you heard about those MCSE programs where they talked about, you know, back then, you know, could get your Windows NT cert and be a millionaire. Uh, so I went in the direction of uh, information technology um, and never looked back. Um, I think from uh, going in the direction of cyber started when I was a technologist. Uh, for whatever reason, I, I just looked at the development of uh, information systems And it just seemed plain to me that, yeah, you should configure the security components of it. Um, So I built secure information systems just kind of the way I built them um, when I just started out. Um, My switch from uh, uh, the Department of Justice over to the Library of Congress was really that time period where I truly went from being a technologist that built uh, enterprise systems to a cyber person who focused on securing those systems. Um, at the Library of Congress, you know, we, we worked on developing all of their um, their security systems. You know their their ability to monitor and respond to threats. So at ASRC Federal, we're focusing on the their, their entire enterprise information system. So we're talking about not just implementing technology. So we're talking about things like you know certainly technology is important. So you know there's SIM, IPS, um, everything that we're working to integrate all of our internal security components to focus on cloud security. We're we're focused on all of that, Um, but also beyond just um, focusing on the information security technologies, um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, when you were presenting your your program, we're very much focused on uh, the the business relationship here with the information security program with everyone that's that's, um, throughout ASRC Federal. Uh, We're very much focused on making sure that um, the information security and cyber program that we have here is very customer focused. A great example is we're not a program of no, we're a program of how can we support you and get the right solutions out to you. Uh, We're very much focused on making sure that the program that we have here at ASRC Federal um, is able to provide um, products to um, our our business units. Uh, We're not just an organization that, that's consuming resources. We're trying to find ways where we can actually produce uh, things that our operating groups um, and then our internal shared services groups can use um, to benefit themselves, and more so than just security. Um, you mentioned um, how how can people get their start, and how can people um, you know, move around and grow within the field. I would say the biggest thing um, from my perspective. Is just um, you know continue to um, strive. One of the things that I've discovered, and some of the things that I've seen you know, on LinkedIn, is folks that um, you can see them lamenting. You know, they're like, you know, I can't move forward. I'm not. You know, it's all about luck. And the reality is, is that when you're when you're moving from position to position, if you talk to those people, it's not luck. There could be a hundred um, you know um, uh, jobs that they applied for, and then they got one. So. There's amazing work out there. There's amazing people that need to uh, be in the jobs that are being uh, put forth, whether it be private or public. And the key thing there is to just keep striving, keep trying, um, and, and keep applying uh, for, for those folks that are just starting out. I mean, there are certainly so many opportunities out there, and it really is just about that. Um, I know I just recently talked to someone who is looking um, to move over from, from IT and to start focusing on security and cyber the way um, that I did so many years ago. And that was one of the things that, that I, I let her know is number one, uh, focus on, you know, the, the, the skills you have right now um, as a technologist, um, you certainly have so many things going for you. Um, it, one of the things that a few years ago, I hired a, um, a network uh, person, um, no, no true cyber experience. and It was one of the best hires I've ever done because being able to bring on a true network person, and being able to train them up in the cyber skills has really just added to my field. And that's one of the things that I would say to people who are trying to break into cyber is, you know, sell what you got because really what we need and it kind of goes into that whole diversity conversation that we're having about in the field right now is this idea that we need people that are thinking differently because the things we haven't been doing, haven't been working. So being able to bring people from other thought uh, areas Is a great way of improving the field in general.
1: So, you know, I got a follow up to that. I mean, I'm I'm seeing, you know, you mentioned you put out 100 applications, and I do talk to people that say, hey, look, there's so many opportunities in the cybersecurity space. I'm constantly hearing about all these jobs that need to be filled. But I, you know, I applied to dozens of positions, and I didn't get a response back. And you talked about being resilient on that. I mean, what do you think that is? Do you think HR departments just can't recognize some of this talent that's out there? or They're just maybe sometimes even in the job description, they're just looking for things that are just so specific, right? Like, unless you're speaking the language of the business right out of the gate and you're talking about, hey, look, people pivoting from whether it's technology or, to be honest with you, risk intelligence spaces, yeah. uh, geopolitical intelligence uh, jobs that, that come over to cybersecurity intelligence uh, positions. I mean, you, to your point, we can train these people we can train these people, but it seems to me they're just getting rejected over and over again, right out of the gate from these HR departments who allegedly screen these applications. And what do you think about that?
2: Well, and I think, you know, when we're talking about the HR departments, I mean, they're not uh, professionals in the field. And, you know, when you're looking at, um, I have a, a relationship with a gentleman in in, uh, in government where uh, he put out a GS-15 position and he had 500 uh, respondents to that application. So, I mean, the, part of the issue is, is that there's so many people that are trying to apply for these jobs um, that you're having folks that are doing initial screenings that just aren't experts in the field because, you know, that individual couldn't take the time to uh, put someone on his team to be this, the initial screener for those 500 individuals. So there, without a doubt, there's certainly people that um, aren't, that, that are fully qualified, but because let's say, I mean, maybe the resumes weren't, um, weren't polished. I mean, that's one of the key things is that if you aren't presenting yourself in such a way where the folks that are screening your resumes, they don't understand what you're doing, then you're setting yourself up for failure. So one of those things is it's constantly reviewing whether or not you're presenting yourself properly. So if you're not getting any response, take a good hard look at what you're presenting because you got to realize that, you know, you, you can't assume that the people who are doing the initial screening understand the field um i mean it's just like yeah you know, as you get as you get further up in 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 the field you try to use acronyms less because you realize that the business folks that you're working with could care less about the acronyms well the hr folks are business folks right they're not security folks so if, if they're not getting good responses take you know, it's, it's a time for self-reflection um, you may have a m- amazing qualifications but you're you're not you're not presenting them right
1: so we were talking about before the, the sort of importance of working both in public and private and uh, sectors and also having that experience and how it's, uh, that kind of diverse experience really helps understanding uh, the different marketplaces and even the different challenges, challenges we have and the solution sets that are out there. The organization does some work in the government services sector. So could you describe to me what you think the cyber landscape is in this space, in this environment right now?
2: So I mean I think that you know having having looked at both and having relationships with folks in government and in a private sector and understanding the um, the challenges I think they're very similar challenges and and I, I tend to go focusing on the business side of things and of course government likes to say mission instead of business but they're basically saying the same thing and what ends up what I'm seeing is is the challenge that a lot of organizations are having is the focus on technology versus focusing on how do I help the mission understand that it's their job, it's, it, it's their due diligence, it's their duty to protect their missions. Um, the way I like to describe it is, you know, we're not, we're not working on stone tablets and chisels. I mean, none of us have. Um, but in a lot of ways, I mean, we, we like to, our, our mission and business folks like to pretend that the important information they have is in a file cabinet somewhere. And someone has to actually break into the building to do something to the mission Um, and the reality is that isn't the case and what ends up happening is i think what's the challenge is folks are 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 fighting this it issue they're saying we need to secure these things because it's really important but they're not doing this this having this conversation at the mission level where they're convincing people right because it's really this is it's this can this conversation where folks need to be engaging with folks who are not technologists and convincing them that oh yeah you're right uh, we need to be focusing on making sure that my mission is protected because yeah at the end of the day you know an organization like the like DHS they don't exist to run IT systems they have so many different missions but if those IT systems are hampered then their 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 missions may may seriously fail and it's those mission leaders that need to be taking the ball because when you when, when you look at organizations that are highly successful, it's when it's those mission leaders that say, I own this, and I support the IT and the cyber folks, and I want this to happen. Um, so I think when you're seeing very successful government organizations and private sector organizations, you have very motivated technologists to get the work done, but you have those mission folks that have either come in or have been convinced that this is their responsibility, and they're just, they're, 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 they're clearing the path with the rest of the organization to say, this is important to me, and this is what we're going to do.
1: So you're a pretty popular guy on social media. I follow everything that you do, and and it's obvious that you're very passionate about the industry, and you volunteer your time with a whole different number of organizations. We talk a lot on this show about a sense of purpose, right? Sense of purpose, feeling like you're actually doing something when you get out of bed in the morning. And we talk about what that is, and I think it comes from a lot of different places and different people. It's, there's different drivers in different people's lives and experiences that pushes them towards cybersecurity. I mean, where does this passion come from with you? And what are some of these organizations you support with, and what is it about?
2: So, so for me, I mean, I, I think I, you know, just have, have gotten to a point where I understand that um, the, the interconnectedness of everything that is uh, technology. You know, whether it be your uh, coffee pot or whether it be the election system, um, you know, it, it it it's all of our responsibility to be demanding that we have um, secure systems uh, from a public perspective. Uh, whether you you know whether you're a person that, that's checking your email at home, whether you're uh, a government employee trying to provide services, or whether you're you know someone like myself trying to uh, you know win battles within a private organization, um, you know, and from my perspective. Um, trying to push out that message, um, you know, far and wide is, is what I'm trying to do and trying to help people understand that, um you know, it, it's, you know, one of the things that you, you often see, you know, especially amongst, uh, you know, my, uh, my my children's peers is they think that because, um, you know, they can click a, uh, an icon on an iPad that makes them an IT expert and you don't need to be an IT expert to, to demand good services from, you know, your Whoever you're buying services from, or from the government, or from any of those things, but helping people to understand that um, you know this is what insecure systems look like. This is what secure systems look like from a business perspective. Helping folks that aren't IT folks to go to their IT people and say, you know, how are you doing these things for me? How are you providing services? You know, getting getting people who aren't IT folks to say, you know, I I'm a data owner, um, and going to their IT groups and saying how are you handling my data? Getting them to the point where they understand that this is their responsibility, kind of that whole mission thing. Getting, that, that's the thing that's passionate for me is trying to get folks to understand that when they're at home, they have responsibilities to protect themselves um, because no one's going to do it for them. Um, you know, this, 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 All this technology has been put on us, but no one has done that, that, that communication piece to really say, you know, protect yourself. Um, you know, the the business landscape and the mission landscape has changed. And a lot of folks just really don't understand that it's changed and and helping them to understand that, you know, you have responsibilities now that are different than they were when, you know, everything was pen and paper Um, and helping them to understand that they have to be engaged. It's not enough to hope that the IT folks are doing it for them. So this, this is kind of my, my opportunity to, to, to give back. So, you know, working with um, you know the different volunteer organizations. So here in Maryland, I'm supporting InfraGard. So we're we're, we're focusing on providing you know, essentially everything I just talked about, making sure that we're providing services to our community in the Maryland area, helping businesses to um, have those conversations between their, their technical folks and their mission folks. Um, I'm also supporting a, a group called uh, the American Council for Technology. Industry advice, industry advisory council, and what that group does is they're, they're a public-private partnership where uh, federal government folks and industry folks come together and really work to develop projects and with the goal of helping move government forward. So it's about better government, um, and you know that that's very passionate for me because you know when you know when we're talking about better better government from a cyber perspective, you know we're talking about protecting your and my information. Um, which, which is a huge way of, you know, helping everyone in the country and giving back. So you know, I'm very passionate about being able to push this 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 message forward because it's such an important message for today.
1: You know, it's so true, Darren. You know, when you think about it, things have changed, Things, especially the security landscape. And I don't think people understand, you know, the average Joe walking around out there, the collective responsibility that we all have in securing our own future, and especially when it comes to cyberspace. And actually, I don't think the, the the, the, the public, the general public, really understands how critical and important cybersecurity is to our national security. And I think every, every, every chance we get to get the word out there and to educate people and bring out awareness is, is, is a great thing. But what ne- what's next for you? I, I heard you mentioned before that you, you might think about getting your doctorate degree in cybersecurity. Is that true?
2: Yeah. I'm actually uh, I'm five weeks into the program. So uh, I didn't I- know that was possible. <laughs> what,
1: what, what program is that?
2: So I'm going through Capella. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so it's an online program. Uh, I'm actually going down in November for my first residency. So there is actually some, some, some human interaction in that, not just interacting with a, um, a portal. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, from a, from a, from a program perspective, um, yeah, I've already had the opportunity to write uh, a book around information security programs and, and developing those. And you know, I, I, so there's a couple things. I mean, obviously I, I wanted to pursue and, 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 Continue my education in cybersecurity, um, really from a research and practitioner perspective, or you know, focusing on um, how, how to improve the the uh, practitioner area. But really, what I wanted to do as part of engaging in this this doctoral program is be able to bring forward a piece of uh, of real cyber research that I think that uh, that can help the community. And yeah, based on the conversations we've had so far, you, you can guess that the what I'm going to be working on is really going to be focused on how do we take and improve that business relationship that, that cyber has and and really focus on making it a business conversation versus, you know, firewalls and IPSs.
1: Right. Right. And you know, once you get into some of this technical stuff, I feel like you lose a lot of people, especially some of the business folks, you know, you really have to speak the language of the business. So I'm looking forward to that research that you're going to do on that paper and, and, and what you're going to come up with regarding that business alignment and how to best achieve, the best business relationships and make sure that cybersecurity is a facilitator and not a, not a blocker to achieving the business mission. But then we're going to take a little time to go to commercial break, but we'll be right back. I got a whole bunch of other questions for you. So, Hey, if, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at test Force seven radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 radio for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the Chief Information Security Officer of ASRC Federal, Mr. Darren Death. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
0: account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation many companies think they're protected they believe using a password manager multi-factor authentication behavior-based technology password rotations or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com.
4: Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time maximize analyst efficiency increase the number of incidents handled and reduce overall risk inkman soar acts as a force multiplier enabling your security team to do more with less streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman's SOAR live in action.
1: I'm here with our special guest, the Chief Information Security Officer of ASRC Federal, Mr. Darren Death. So Darren, we talk a lot about cyber hygiene on this show, and, and we're always talking about the maintenance of your cybersecurity uh, systems in, in any organization um, and how important it is. Tell us what you think about the importance of cyber hygiene in, in an enterprise.
2: So you know, cyber hygiene is one of those things that really has gotten a lot of. Um, it's, it's you know, it's foundational. It's one of your most important things you're going to focus on, but it it's forgotten. Um, you know, when when you look at the uh, the issues of our day, when you look at the uh, the hacks we're seeing, they're they're not these amazingly choreographed APTs um, that are occurring. Um, what you're seeing is um, someone didn't patch a server. Um, configuration was missing. Um, someone put a development server um, with, with internet access. Um, it's, it's these basic things that organizations aren't doing. Um, and arguably, I mean uh, we call it cyber hygiene and, and I call it cyber hygiene because if you call it anything else, um, you know folks don't know what you're saying but really it's IT hygiene. Um, you know one of the things that you know I think is important to highlight is I mean the reason why we have CISOs is because we need someone to, focus on these things that are foundational IT issues. Um, Patching your systems is arguably, I mean, it's not something that the average uh, Cisco shop is doing. It's your IT shop. Um, You know, these are are IT hygiene. Um, The configuration of a window, like I said, back in the past when I was an engineer, I considered these IT hygiene things. It was just something that you did to run your systems. And we're we're showing very clearly, uh, based on the evidence that's out there, that not running your systems, these basic things. I mean, they're not things that we can argue about anymore. In the past, we had fear, uncertainty, and doubt. We FUD is what we would talk about. And we'd say, you have to do this work because bad things will happen. Um, and there wasn't good enough evidence. So everyone would complain to security and say, why do I have to patch my systems? I don't agree with you. There's no argument now. There's enough evidence to show that people are attacking our systems based on the lowest common denominator. And That's what really cyber hygiene and IT hygiene is all about, is... Focusing on making sure you have the resources within your organization to do the basic foundational work that deals with 90% of the problems that we're seeing. Now, I will grant you, if we got to a point where we were everyone was doing the work, then yes, the 10% would become the 90%, and it would just it would move. But we would be changing the way the adversary has to deal with our organizations way different, differently. We're literally keeping our front doors open. I mean, again, kind of going back to, and this is, this is how, again, changing that mission conversation when the business would talk about the business still thinks that they're running their, um, their organizations out of a file cabinet, you know, the same sort of argument. Do you realize that you're leaving your front doors open? You have guards, you have guns, you have all these things, you have badges, but you're leaving your front door open from a technical perspective. And the bad guy is not going to come in with a gun to try and, you know, do some sort of mission impossible against your organization to get your data. They're just sitting at their house and they're, 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 they're doing a scan they're finding an unpatched server and they're getting it. So to me, that's what IT cyber hygiene is about: is going in and dealing with those basic foundational issues, focusing on them as an IT issue, getting IT involved, and having the mission behind you saying, "We need to do this work because we need to be we need to be here to run another day."
1: You know, it, it's it's a lot harder than it sounds, right? We were talking before about business relationships and and having that relationship with the line of business, but you need that relationship with your IT department as well and you need to partner with them to get this done. So how do you partner with internal IT organizations to drive this cyber hygiene that's necessary for our success?
2: There's a couple things um, that I do that I found very successful. One is the tools that I implement. Um, I don't hold them back. I don't hold back access. I don't filter the content. Um, I want to make sure that everything that I'm producing is, something that the IT department can use also. So all of my continuous monitoring tools are fully open and available. Um, I do training with the IT group to so they can use them. Um, they can do their own reporting um, because from my perspective, just like how from an SDLC perspective, getting cyber involved at the beginning of a project helps to make sure security is implemented and making sure that it's cheaper than at the end, making sure that the IT department has the same visibility into my resources means that, you know, they can more quickly respond. So instead of me sending a weekly report, you know, they can look at it at will and they do, and they're fixing things continuously, which is kind of like what we want to do with this. Um, Also one of the things that I learned very early in my career is don't drop bombs. So, you know, what, what you need is, um, folks that are on your side, not against you. So if I have an issue, you know, I'm very quickly going to go to, you know, different folks within the IT group and talk to them about what my issues are. I don't take, I don't call them out in front of the CIO. Um, you know, I, I, I work with them on here's the issue. How are we going to solve this? How can we do this in a way that, you know, reduces the risk to our organization? Um, you know, do we, do we need to deal with this from a maturity perspective? So if we have an all hands on deck moment, what do we have to deal with now? Uh, what are we going to deal with tomorrow? And you know, with what's the plan for this thing? Um, I found that highly successful, and you know, I think folks that are having a really hard time interacting with their their IT group is, I think they're dropping bombs, and they need to, they need to is kind of the self reflection thing. And you know, I'm not perfect. I mean, there's, I have to self reflect all the time because it's easy to do. Um, you don't really. I mean, it's it's just human inter- interaction stuff. It's the soft skills. You always have to be thinking about you know, am, am I causing this issue? Um and you know sometimes I am and I need to I need to reflect and change that. Um and um just continuously working through uh with that relationship and just really dealing with the, the IT cyber relationship just just the same way as I said earlier that we're not an organization of no but how can we? Um it's 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 the same thing with IT is it's very easy to get that adversarial relationship. Um and the key you know treat, having your entire cyber team you know, thinking as, you know, we're we're a customer service organization um, and treating that uh, with IT. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen since time, I've been here at Federal, um, a really great relationship blossom between uh, cyber and IT because we're, we're very customer focused. We're very much focused on how, how do we improve IT and cyber versus IT, you have a problem, you need to fix it. And if you don't, I'm going to go to the CIO and, and say there's a problem.
1: Let's talk about the technology for a second, because a lot of the emerging technologies that are out there, I think, introduce new risk into our environments. And sometimes, a lot of time, actually, I think this new risk isn't really thought about. It's just more of excitement about the new emerging technology and how it can be used to facilitate business. So how does IT modernization support cybersecurity and cyber hygiene if it's done properly?
2: So, you know, from an IT modernization perspective, I and mean, really what you're doing is, is, is you're you're cleaning out the organization, um, you know, whether it be from a, a old process perspective or old technology perspective, um, you know, moving towards things, um, you know, in some cases we're talking about um, new cloud services where these organizations are implementing process, procedure, and security on a scale that most organizations could never even hope to achieve. Uh, you know, so from the perspective of just the scale that some of these new modernized services are providing, um, you know, you're, you're just getting so much um, um, capability out of these organizations. Um, but from an IT modernization perspective, I mean, especially like when you're looking at um, large organizations and large government agencies, you know, when you're looking at the, these old mainframe systems, this is a great opportunity where you're you're replacing old antiquated technology, you're you're replacing old antiquated processes, and you're able to, and again, assuming security is involved in that at the very beginning, you're able to look at that modern that modernizing process to be able to integrate all of this great security capability into it. And also with the mission being involved, that's where the mission can come in and understand, say, you know, I, I need to implement these new capabilities in a secure way. And the point here is not security for security's sake, but it's the business and the mission saying, we're, we're implementing these new processes. We're going to do them in a secure way. You know, either, you know, we're protecting our constituencies, we're protecting the PII of, you know, when we're talking about like, you know, um, all the PII breaches we've seen in private sector, we're protecting our business as well as, you know, the, the public sector. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it is a great opportunity um, when you're talking about IT modernization to, not bolt one, but built-in built in security.
1: So one of the things that they talk about a lot recently is technical debt associated with cybersecurity. So how, how do organizations incur technical debt in their information systems through inaction related to cybersecurity?
2: So, you know, when you're looking at, I mean, it, it takes the the conversation around um, um, cyber hygiene as an example. So, you know, what you're seeing is, in, in the world is folks have decided that, they don't necessarily need to patch or configure or have appropriate asset or configuration management to, to, to manage their networks. And what's happening is, is you, I mean, you're seeing large breaches re- resulting from that. So, you know, a lot of times folks will say, you know, I don't have the resources to do some work. Well, because they're either not purchasing an automation tool or they're purchased or they're, they're hiring an individual to perform some action on a, on a routine basis then you have these large, you know, large, large breaches where you know you now have millions of dollars of um, investigations incurred. Um, you know, if you're, you're uh, whether you're private or public sector, you have a huge loss in reputation. People don't trust you anymore. Um, you know, you. you um, I mean, there are so many organizations. I mean, you, you see it still. I mean, they're they're referred to. Um, they they're used in jokes, um, and that's not what people. That's not what organizations want. Um, and if you look at you know again it, it we used to talk in fear uncertainty and doubt. but now we have a body of evidence, and we can say, you know, if they would have done this and then possibly this wouldn't have occurred because when you're looking at what 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 happened, these breaches again it, it it's unpatched um, web servers, it's development servers sitting in product, um, in production, connected directly to the internet, very simple things that If the the diligence was in place and if IT and cyber would have communicated to the mission the importance and they would have understand what it was that that the mission had to deal with, then they very well may have taken that action. It's so easy for a mission to take a risk-based approach and say we don't need to do this when all you're talking about is firewalls and IPSs. Um, but if you're saying this is you know, this is what we're trying to defend against. this is our customer, this is our data, this is what we need to do to protect it, then it's a very different discussion.
1: So when we're talking about I guess consequences of inaction, right? We look we, we have you know, we look back on you know historical breaches not only in our own organizations, but other organizations, we look at lessons learned, and we take these teaching moments and we sort of apply them to future decision making especially around critical decisions around budgets and things like that. We get into return on security investment, your return on what the money that you spend to secure your assets, to protect your people, uh, to protect your PII. And how would you describe the cost related to information security? This is a big question. I know we could probably spend a whole episode on it, but I just kind of want to get your thoughts around the cost related to information security do you believe on return on security investment and how important it is to be able to articulate this to the board and to your C-suite?
2: I think that when we're talking about the costs related to information security, what we're really talking about is the the foundational costs of implementing um, new technologies within an organization. So one of the things that you know when I, when I'm when we're talking about security costs, I mean it, it's it's kind of interesting because the um, you know when we. Um, I had someone that I was giving some advice to, and they were talking about, um, they, they were moving to a, uh, a new cloud platform, and there were a number of new technologies that they needed to implement because the um, is the security services that are used to secure an internal infrastructure, they just don't work in a cloud. So when they were trying to communicate these to their, their mission in the business, what they ended up having the issue with is they were talking about all these new security services. And what I told them, and it ended up being a pretty effective way for them to communicate this, was they changed it. So what they were, were they, they were actually cloud costs because the mission had the desire to move to the cloud. Um, if the mission didn't have that desire, and it was a great, it, they were right, it's what they wanted to do. But what ended up happening was, is they started talking about the security costs and whether or not they were required. But the reality is they were cloud costs. They they were the costs from an IT modernization perspective for this organization to go to the cloud. Um, And and, and then it goes back to that mission and foundational conversation. And it was really about also the organization not just talking about, again, here's these little things that we're going to implement. Here are these security things, and aren't they great? It was really about, okay, understand that you're in the cloud now. We have a different... um, a different threat vector that we're going to be dealing with. We have uh, your, your data is not within our data center and we need to control it in different ways and actually start talking with the mission about, you know, what do you care about from a, a uh, from a data protection perspective? Um, and having that conversation as these are foundational cloud costs versus these are bolt on security costs. We're very effective.
1: So let's talk about requirements for a second. When we're talking to the IT departments, how would you describe the cybersecurity requirements of technology, especially emerging technology, related to information systems?
2: So one of the things that, that um, I like to say is cybersecurity requirements don't exist. Um, from my perspective, they're, they're, they're base foundational requirements. Um, when, when, when folks come in, because one of the things that has been common throughout my career that I've seen um, I think it's becoming a little less common, but it, it still is, you know, because we have the whole uh, plan of action and milestone process, right? So people are like, oh, we don't need to do that. We'll we'll just poem it. Um, from my perspective, the the what we need to do is again, if you're at the beginning of the project and you can build so that you have the opportunity to build them in as foundational requirements, then. These things are things that we should just be building in, especially when you consider a lot of times these security requirements are their checkboxes, they're, they're design considerations, and the reason why they become difficult is because they're not built in or implemented into a system. So, as foundational requirements, as as business requirements, I mean, they're, you know, when when a, when a business leader is involved, you know, they could get very um, um, involved and animated over how let's say an application looks whether or not a, a text box is, is aligned in the appropriate location of an application um, however you know because this is kind of you know, behind the scenes they may not necessarily be as interested in, in how the 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 application is secured but if we're involved at the beginning we're, and we're involved with the business and the mission and not just IT and we're able to have those conversations where these are foundational requirements or so they're not they're not negotiable requirements because Again, because we can pull forward from – pull from a body of knowledge and we can say, here's the evidence that we have. This is why you have to do it. And it's really not – in most cases, we're not talking about increased expenses and having the the, the the cyber leaders being able to talk to the mission leaders and being able to show them very clearly that – the difference between implementing it, you know, one way versus another, there may not be a whole lot of, um, of, of difference for them from uh, usability and from an expense perspective.
1: So you're in a senior leadership position and we were talking before about soft skills and you mentioned, you know, the soft skills that are needed to actually get things done. And when you think about persuasion, negotiation, influence skills, those soft skills that help you become successful, build relationships, it really is a, a difficult to find one person that has all these skills that are needed to be a successful cybersecurity leader. So a lot of times I see organizations now, they're not only hiring CISOs, but they're hiring deputy CISOs that actually complement the CISOs uh, skill set to try to round out uh, that skill set and make a team of, of people, uh, usually the, the CISO and the deputy, that can actually carry out those leadership responsibilities for the organization, but in your mind, what is the leader's responsibility as it relates to cyber and their organization?
0: So
2: uh, from my perspective, you know, when, I, when I look at my role, my, my job is really to help um, clear a path uh, from uh, you know, whether it be clearing a path from IT and cyber to the business, having those conversations. Um, you know, not, that, not that long ago, probably a month ago, I was having a conversation with our legal department Uh, about an application. Um, and at the end of the conversation, you know, we, we, we were talking about the, about that application. And I, and I mentioned them, I said, do you realize that we we talked for this application, talked about this application for an hour? Do you notice we didn't talk about about technology once? Um, and they were like, Oh yeah, really? And I I was like, well, that, that, that's, because we were having a conversation about the difference between a technology conversation and a technology related business conversation. And, and, and they got that. Um, and you know, I bring that up because we, we were just having a conversation about that. But I think that's the key thing is from a, from a, from a technical leadership perspective, being able to talk to someone that, that is in the mission or in the business where, you, where you're talking about their needs because at the end of the day, they don't care about how it works. Um, it's like the telephones. I mean, no one cares about the telephones until they break. No one cares really about their technology until it doesn't work. Um, But what they care about is is their mission, right? So in that case, legal didn't care about necessarily, I mean, certainly they care, but they didn't care about how everything worked, um, you know, X, Y, and Z. But what they did care about was, you know, their activities and what they needed to do to be successful and and to to stay fully employed and to keep the organization running. Um, And, you know, we had an hour-long conversation about that. And then, you know, it's my job then to take the conversation that we had and then be able to decompose it into something that both my cyber team and both my and and the IT team can use to provide them, you know, great solutions. Um, and then also, you know, being able to um, be customer focused. Um, you know, um, part of my background when I, you know, when I mentioned you know, being an aircraft mechanic was uh, being in the Air Force, and the Air Force is, you know, incredibly customer focused. So I, I, I drank that Kool Aid so many years ago, um, and I bring that forward here. So being a customer-focused organization, um, you know, listening to um, what folks are coming to me with, um, not having an immediate reaction to, to we can't do this, um, you know. And sometimes even if the answer is no, um, being able to go away and say, well, let me um, let me get back to you. Uh, it's just a simple, soft skill, right, so you can have the right message. Um, so that you can be able to come forward to wh- whoever it is that you're communicating with, where if the answer is no, that you, you aren't coming back with that knee-jerk reaction, but you're having that, that thoughtful reaction, um, realizing that the folks that you're working with, they're people too. They're not, um, they're not the adversary. They're, they're part of your mission. Um, I think that's a huge soft skill.
1: All right, Darren, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from the Chief Information Security Officer of ASRC Federal, Mr. Darren Death. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
0: Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com.
4: Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman's SOAR live in action.
1: I'm here with our special guest, the Chief Information Security Officer of ASRC Federal, Mr. Darren Death. So a lot of people think of compliance as sort of this checkbox exercise that doesn't really contribute to real risk mitigation. And, And I think it's really important for your organization's survival, at least, to have sort of these baseline compliance initiatives that are there. We talk a lot about the different compliance uh, frameworks that are out there all the time, and uh, I think we, we, were, we just had a recent conversation with the, the former uh, CSO or, or CISO of NBC Universal, and he was saying that uh, I think one of the like NIST framework was like very high percentage of it, like 80, 90% of it was all based on the, per, the prevention piece and not the rest of the ecosystem in terms of the response to recovery and things like that. In your mind, how can compliance drive an effective information security program?
2: So from a a compliance perspective, um, usually, well, not usually, when when you're looking at compliance, there's a reason why you're having the conversation. Uh, If you're a regulated organization, if you are doing government contracting, um, if you're in banking, there there are different reasons why you're having this compliance conversation. It's because you, you have to do it. And, again, this goes back to talking with the business and mission. So, you know, I do agree when folks say, If all you're doing is compliance, then you're not doing your job. But compliance is where you can have the conversation. So when you're talking about being able to integrate with your business and mission, usually when you're talking about compliance, you're talking about continuing to be able to function as a company or being able to keep your job if you're in the government. So these are powerful conversations to have with people because they really get to kind of the, you know, why am I here? Um, so, you know, like taking um, um, our organization, for example, 800-171 compliance, which is something that's come out from the government, that that, that that's absolutely um, needful for our organization to be able to continue uh, winning new work and keeping work, um, and also for the government to be able to trust us um, as a, you know, a, a defense contractor. So um, being able to go to our business and be able to say, here is, here is a challenge that we need to be able to deal with, um, that we need to be able to, sh- um, you know, to do this because the government wants us to do it, but also taking that compliance conversation. And then, you know, as you mentioned uh, earlier from your previous talk, then we were able to have a resiliency conversation because what we did was we said, okay, here's the compliance that we have to engage in, but we also need to do the needful from a security perspective uh, because we need to be able to uh, be a resilient organization. We need to be able to make sure that you know, at the end of the day, that we're an organization that that can stand the test of time. And the compliance conversation is what drove that. Um, It absolutely opened the door um, and and allowed us to have that business and that mission conversation. So with compliance came the conversation around resilience and security and being able to, you know, because if you're going to be a compliant organization, you're also going to spend money. And the, you know, the question for the business is, do you want to spend money on things that don't matter? Or do you want to spend money on things that matter? And being able to show what that difference is and getting buy-off on it. Um, and that's where compliance brings that conversation. So you know, if all you're doing is creating documentation and therefore you're compliant, then that's not how you want to use compliance. But if you take compliance and you say, here are the things that are related to compliance, here, here's my compliance checklist, and this is how I'm going to improve the organization and be resilient and therefore I'm compliant. Then you, you've, you've got a recipe for success.
1: So you have a lot of experience in the SSDLC space. So tell us about your approach to secure software development and how important it is to an organization.
2: So, you know, just, just like we talked about earlier with uh, making sure security's uh, tied in at the beginning. So um, from... You know a new software project um, so the security team should be there right project initiation um, just like any SDLC and that, that, I mean that's really whether it's an agile project or a waterfall but from specifically from a secure software development perspective the thing that I found has really worked well is you want to make sure that the software teams have the security tools um, yeah, unless you're a very special security organization, most, most security organizations don't necessarily have developers. Some do, and that's great. Um, but even still, even if you have a developer, a security team usually doesn't have the bandwidth to be the gate that, is, um, that all software has to flow through. But if you can provide all of your, your code testing software, um, any of your dynamic testing software, um, you can provide those tools to, to the developer team configure those tools to meet your organizational standard and then allow the, the developers to then integrate it into their testing and their quality review and the remediation. Then, you, you, essentially, this, this goes back to that idea of, you know, the it, it security is everyone's responsibility, whether it be IT or the software developers. So in this way, because it's one of the things that I found, and interestingly, um, I think developer teams and security usually are the ones that I think tend to go head to head more often and I think part of it is a lack of humility because security teams don't necessarily know um, development like developers do um, but they come in with a lot of requirements and don't tell um, the developers um, how to do anything uh, related to those requirements. Now one of the ways that we solve that is we come to our development team and say you know these are our requirements work with us to meet those requirements. Um, so, so, again, customer service and humility is a huge thing that has helped us with our developer teams because, you know, we're not necessarily your, 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 your uh, developer group, but we do know the security requirements and we can help solve those. Um, and then beyond that, giving them the tools to do their testing, incredibly conscientious people, um, you know, that I found. And, you know, they'll do the testing, they'll, they'll, they'll remediate the findings, and then what we do is we do the trust but verify at that point. So, essentially, they're meeting their own cycles, they're doing their own testing, they're remediating their own findings, and then at the end, we're verifying that that work has been done. So, really, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're giving them the tools to engage in security, we're giving them the requirements, we're providing them all the customer service so that they can, they can meet those requirements, and at the end, we're just verifying that those things that look green actually are green.
1: So, there's, I hear a lot of talk about zero trust. And, and it's being discussed a lot in the industry right now. Can, can you describe zero trust and your approach to implementing zero trust?
2: Yeah, so, so, so one of the things to um, recognize from a zero trust perspective is, um, don't think of it as a thing, uh, it's an idea. So, and it's a great idea, um, but you know, so for, for those that are listening, um, when you're looking at the products that are purporting to be your zero trust solution, Um, just remember that there is no one zero trust solution. Um, it, it, it's a, it's a selection of tools that you're going to implement to provide you a zero trust, um, implementation within your organization. The idea behind zero trust is to take a number of factors about, um, an individual and the system that they're coming across the uh, internet on, uh, or the network and ensuring that, um, yeah, you know, the, the the within zero trust, the idea of trusting them is not the the right term. But ultimately, what you're doing is is you're trying to determine whether or not those individuals uh, that are coming all across to access data that you you have categorized that they actually have the rights to access that information. That the information systems that they're coming across, you know, you know, their workstations or, or endpoint devices, um, that they that they are secure, that they have uh, the proper cyber hygiene components associated with them. Um, so what you're trying to do is you're, you're developing a risk rating or, uh, against them and saying, you know, at some point, um, does this individual meet the threshold to where I will allow them to access data? Um, the key thing for me, also beyond just those zero trust tools that do all of that work, and this is the hard part um, from a, a mission perspective, because a lot this is, this is the hard work, is data categorization. So the only way that you're going to get an effective zero trust implementation is to understand your data, because really within zero trust, it's not about the network, it's not about the systems, it's about the data. So if you haven't done the hard work to understand, um, you know, let's say I have, let's say I have proposal data. If you haven't done the hard work to understand, this is the proposal data I have. Uh, this is where it sits. These are the people that have that should be accessing it. If you haven't done that, then you can't do zero trust. Um, essentially, all you, you have at that point is the same old network, um, and you're making sure that the people that are on your network can access the information. So the the key thing um, when you're when you're gauging the zero trust conversation is asking yourself before you know by all means go look at the tools. Tools are great, but do I know what data is important to me, and do I understand what people should be accessing that data? That's the first thing that you need to do. If you're dealing with large data buckets, if everything's just sitting on a file share, you have a lot of work to do organizationally before you can implement Zero Trust.
1: So whenever I get a CISO on the show, I like to ask them about cybersecurity around emerging technologies like IoT and, and cloud and, and, and get their opinion on some of the, uh, the things that their organizations are doing to secure these environments. So how do you approach the implementation of these new cloud technologies from a cybersecurity perspective?
2: So um, yeah, you'll notice a lot of what I talk about has to do with the process. So from from an initiation perspective, my team is involved um, from from the very beginning. Uh, what we what I've implemented um, every, everywhere I've been is this idea of uh, security advisement or security architecture, uh, where I have team members that are embedded within project teams, um, where they're addressing these these requirements. So you know. Re- Remember, you know, when we're talking about cloud, I mean, we're not necessarily talking about you know, Microsoft and, and Azure. We're talking about any of these services, these software as a service services that may be out there. So you know, we've, we've developed our own um, you know, in-depth review uh, you know, questionnaire that we engage with um, providers. The key thing here is, is that we're not throwing our questionnaire. I mean, really, it's an internal questionnaire um, so that we have a repeatable process. Um, my team members work with the uh, cloud provider and the project team To understand what these uh, these cloud solutions are actually providing how they're um, how they're managing the uh, security on the back end and how we can integrate our security services that we've implemented um, to manage our cloud um, effectively because like I mentioned before the things that you run to run an internal network where you have full control are completely different services than than what you run uh, when you want to manage cloud services so we want to make sure we have those hooks into um, any cloud service we buy so that we can make sure we have the same level of security um, outside of our organization as what we have internally.
1: So what about intelligence-led programs? I'm really big on the intelligence-led models that are being implemented out there in the cybersecurity space. I mean, what's your approach to security operations where intelligence is effectively integrated to build a, a security intelligence center?
2: So one of the things that that I have um, had just the in, incredible um, opportunity to, to have on my team. is just um, individuals that are really gifted at um, mashing data together. Um, you know, I, I don't specifically have data scientists on my team, but I mean, it sure feels like I do. So, I mean, the, the key thing here is recognizing that a security organization really is a big data group um, and being able to understand what information you have and how you can use it is incredibly powerful. So from an intelligence perspective, um, you know, when we're when, – when I come to uh, my, my CIO and say, we have an all-hands-on-deck moment right here. We need to get something um, something fixed. Um, they've, they've learned that, you know, I'm, this information is based on metrics. This information is based on um, – the, the, the prioritization of what's in our environment um, you know based on where those things are located on the, the network based on vulnerability data uh, coming from very various vulnerability sources uh, we're able to very clearly show that here's something that we need to expend resources on right now. Um, here's something we need to expend resources on over this month. Uh, we're able to, we're able to prioritize that very quickly and very easily um, now it's based on a lot of work uh, on the back end. But when these things come in, because we've taken the time to integrate our sim and our, our vulnerability management system together, the you know, the fact that we we have all of our cloud resources um, fully integrated into a, a very effective CASB, we're able to pull all these information resources um, and do our own analysis. Um, you know, and this is this is homegrown analysis. So I mean, you know, we're writing we're writing BB scripts. Uh, we're we're writing we're writing uh, you know uh, Python scripts. I mean, we're we're we're, we're Loading up things into our own data and running our own SQL um, um, expressions against them. So, I mean, this is where you're able to get that intelligence, uh, from my opinion. Uh, and certainly, you know, we're we're using various intelligence tools. We you know where we're we're getting threat and tell information into our, our other our other you know so tools like you know, our SIM and various uh, malware devices. But when we're talking about actually being able to get things that we can take action on, that's really the hard work of the team where. They're, they're, they're building their own automation to run these really in-depth uh, um, deep dives into our data.
1: Darren, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for spending the time with us tonight. I, I hope you come back often.
2: All right. Thank you, sir. You have a good day.
1: All right. I appreciate it, brother. Folks, we've run out of time once again. That was pretty fast. I mean, before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.csHub.com, that's the Cybersecurity Hub at csHub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force Seven Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force Seven Radio. To learn more about Task Force Seven Radio please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel.